0: Amen. Well, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Zach. I'm one of the leaders around here. Really excited to be with you today. There we go. All right. Stephen got you all warmed up. I like that. Hey, if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter four, we are studying the life of Jesus uh, in general, and we're studying his good and beautiful kingdom, the salvation that he's come to bring in specific. We've been learning about that good and beautiful kingdom. We've seen that it's a kingdom that values inward reality. It values what's really in the heart versus the outward show that so often our world esteems. Uh, That it's a kingdom that utilizes authority to bless and build up, not to tear down and destroy. And it has power over demons. that It has power over spiritual darkness to set people free. Today we're going to learn another aspect, another characteristic, another piece of the culture of the good and beautiful kingdom. It's a kingdom that practices margin and mission. So if you'll look in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 42 through 44 today. And let's read together. And when it was day, he, being Jesus, he departed and he went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Uh, several years ago, I read a book that profiled some of the greatest artists, musicians, creatives, uh, novelist writers that our world has ever seen. It was a short book, and it kind of shared different details about their lives. And I don't know about you, but I kind of went into the book thinking, you know, creative people, uh, often the stereotype is that they're kind of wild and out there, undisciplined, and, and they just kind of Catch a spark of genius somewhere around 1 a.m., you know, and just these great works of art burst forth. At least I think that's the stereotype around creative people. If you're a creative person, you might agree with that or disagree with that. What I found, though, was interesting in studying these world-class creatives like Beethoven or Bach or Toni Morrison, the writer, F. Scott Fitzgerald, all these different famous creatives is that they had an underlying rhythm or habit to their lives, that was really a building block for their creative work. I want to give you a, a few. Um, the first one is is Mozart. Mozart, the famous composer, had a habit that he would rise. He said every day uh, by six a.m. his hair was done. You can see his picture. Take some time to get those curls, you know, styled and profiled. So every day by six a.m. his hair was done. He was fully dressed by seven. And he said from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., this two-hour window, he would give himself fully to composing at 9. He would go off to work. After work, he would go and take dinner with his girlfriend, and then he'd return home around 10.30 or 11. And he said from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. every night, he would give himself again to composing. So he had this rhythm Uh, that was behind the scenes that gave him the ability to create these great works of art. Toni Morrison, the famous writer, she said that she would arise by 6. She would take coffee with her husband at 6.30. And she said she realized she couldn't work at home, so she kept a hotel room rented always. And she would be at the hotel room by 7. And there she wanted very particular things. She wanted a desk with a Bible, a dictionary, a deck of playing cards, and a bottle of sherry. And she would work from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. every day, focused on her writing. And at 2 p.m. she would shut off the switch. She would go home. She would go about her day. She'd kind of leave her work there. Uh, Next person, Voltaire, another interesting character, a French philosopher. So rather than being an early riser, he would remain in bed until noon every day. But... He would call his scribes and his secretaries to come and to write down kind of his speeches and his thoughts while he lay in bed in the morning. <laughs> when he would arise, it said that he would take a lunch of coffee and chocolate every day to sustain him. And then he would continue on his work. He said that he would work 18 to 20 hours a day. So very uh, just working all the time, but some peculiar habits that shaped that work. F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald Another famous writer, he was in the army, and so his creative time came on the weekends. So he said that he would write from noon on Saturday to midnight and then wake up early on Sunday morning and write from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And this rhythm is what gave rise to his writings. Last one that I thought we should just throw in uh, for fun is Beethoven. Again, famous composer He was a coffee guy. So all you coffee people out there, this is your guy. He would rise early, and his big focus was his cup of coffee. He believed that a good cup of coffee was brewed from 60 coffee beans. And so he would count them out (laughs) each morning to make sure he had the right amount, right? And then he would brew the coffee, and he would work on until about 2 p.m., And then he'd take a break, he'd go about and do his thing, and actually he'd go to bed at 10 p.m. and just start the whole deal over the next day. So interesting coffee habits. Why do I tell those stories? In this passage of Luke that we're studying, we see one of the habits, one of the rhythms, one of the ways of Jesus, one of the ways of the kingdom of God that I want to point out to you that underlies or undergirds All the fruit uh, that comes forth. Look again in verse 42. Luke details this that when it was day, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. Now, if this is your first time reading through the Gospel of Luke, you might pass over that phrase and be like, that's an interesting detail. But if you've read through this, what you'll see is that Luke is very diligent, very intentional in pointing out this rhythm or pattern. Or habit in the life of Jesus to withdraw from public view, to pull back, to retreat, to rest, to get alone with God and to be recharged. Chapter 4, I'm going to walk you through several examples in Luke. Chapter 4 opens up in verse 1 with Jesus leaving the scene of his baptism and going into the wilderness for 40 days. No friends, no technology, no restaurants, no TV, just alone with God. And there he would fast and he would pray. And that was kind of the beginning of his public ministry. Now, later in chapter 4, we've seen after this season or these, these, this outpouring where he's healing and delivering people, and now he's retreating back to a desolate place. In chapter 5, verse 15, just a couple of verses uh, further, It says this, Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Now look in verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So here we see Luke using the word often, highlighting this was a habit or a rhythm or a way of his life. In chapter 6, Uh, In verse 12, we see again Jesus going out to the mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, came, he called his disciples to him. So now we see again Jesus withdrawing, taking time to get alone and to get alone with God and to pray and to seek the Father. In Luke chapter 9, we see that now these disciples that he's called, he begins to teach them this way or this rhythm or this habit. Luke 9 verse 10, he, Jesus, took them, the disciples, and they went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And in verse 18, we see what they were doing there once when Jesus was praying in private, His disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a part of this kingdom was to be invited in to this rhythm of silence, of solitude, of rest and of prayer. And Jesus is ministering to them there. He's teaching them the way in verse 28 again. And now after about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John and James, some of his disciples. And where did they go? They went up to the mountain to pray. In verse 11, I mean, in chapter 11, we see again, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So now his disciples, seeing this way of Jesus, seeing the way that he's living, seeing this pattern in his relationship with God, this practice, they're saying, hey, we want what you have. Teach us how to do That thing, right? And so the disciples are being formed by this lifestyle of Jesus. In chapter 21, towards the end of Luke, we see again, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. So each day would be spent in ministry. And then at night he would go again out to the mountain, out to the hill to seek his father, to pray. And later on in chapter 21, we read this incredible passage of scripture that we're going to look at further in just a moment. But let's read it through together. One of these scenes when Jesus is out at the Mount of Olives. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Note that as usual. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you would not fall into temptation. And he withdrew a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So now let's go back to chapter 4. And now when we read and we see Jesus going into the desolate place, In verse 42, we see this was not a happenstance kind of deal. This wasn't, oh, he just happened to do this. This was a rhythm or a habit or a way of his life that Luke is intentionally inviting us to see, showing us this manner of the kingdom, that it's a kingdom where we practice margin. And I want to share with you six gifts that we see in the life of Jesus, six things his disciples would have seen in his life and would have received in their spiritual formation that we have the opportunity to receive as well, that we have the opportunity to come into when we practice this way. Number one of the six gifts from the desolate place is the gift of rest. The gift of rest. So we see that when they would withdraw, when they would pull back from kind of the hubbub of public ministry, right? Jesus has just been healing, He's just been casting out demons. People are wanting him. They're wanting his attention. They're wanting him around, right? But he pulls back, and one of the gifts that he receives is the ability to rest. We'll see later with his disciples after a busy season of ministry, he says, come away with me to a quiet place. He's wanting to give his disciples rest. When we enter into the way of Jesus, we receive this gift of rest. Now, it's important for us to see uh, that in the way of the world, right, you work and you work and you work and you work and you work, and then you finally get burnt out, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I've got to get away from here. So you drop your real life, and you, you, you fly away to somewhere, and you kind of gorge yourself on food or alcohol or relationships or whatever it may be, right, right? And then you come back from this time away, you say, well, it's back to life, it's back to reality, it's back to the real world, right? In the way of the world, we take rest just to escape the pressures of real life. In the way of the kingdom, in the way of the good and beautiful kingdom, we practice rest not as a way to escape real life, but to proactively receive God's care for our lives. It's a part of our life. That Jesus is not pushing his disciples further, work, 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 work. No, he's bringing them into rhythms of rest. Now, the only way that you can do this. The only way that you can live this way, you realize in the way of the world, we work, 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 work because we're trying all the while to uh, get something. I got to prove myself. I got to achieve. I got to get a good resume. I have to get good grades. I have to have this relationship, this bank account, this thing, this thing. And we can just go and go and go and go and go until we finally fry and we've got to pull away. We live like slaves. But in the kingdom, Jesus adopts a sin, your identity changes. You become a son, you become a daughter, you're a part of the family. Sons and daughters can rest because their identity is set. We are not human doings, we are human beings. And the kingdom rehumanizes us away from slaves that just have to go after everything all the time into people of value that comes from who we are and who Jesus is. Has made us to be. That's the first benefit, first gift of the wilderness. Interestingly enough, in the French Revolution, their goal uh, happened around the same time as the American Revolution. Part of their goal was to wipe out every kind of trace of the church and of Christianity. And so one of the things they did away with was the weekend. The weekend was geared around the idea of Sabbath, of regularly taking rest. They said, We're having no more weekends, we're going to work all the time. We're just going to, you're free to just go and do and be and be all these things. And people didn't flourish in that environment. They floundered. We as humans, we need rest. And the good and beautiful kingdom invites us into that rest. Second gift that we receive from the desolate place is the gift of a deeper relationship with God. Jesus' disciples, when they're asking him, hey, we want to do that thing you're doing. We want to learn How to pray. We want to learn how to do it your way. You would think, I would think if I'm teaching someone to pray, I'm going to start with, okay, here's how you make a request. Here's what you ask for. Here's about faith. What does Jesus start with? Our Father. He teaches them the Lord's Prayer. The first place that he says is you get to know God as Father. You get to come to him, to know him, to enjoy him, to build a deep relationship with God. Dallas Willard, the the theologian and philosopher, said hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life. Hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life. We have to slow down to stop, to breathe, to meet with God. and We come to know Him in a deeper way when we practice this rhythm of silence and solitude. The third gift that we see is being able to face and overcome our shadow self. What do I mean by that? We see in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus goes into the wilderness for the first time that we see, that's also the place where he's tempted by the devil. The devil comes and brings specific temptations to Jesus. And if you study it, it's so interesting. Every temptation starts with, if you are the son of God, then do this. He's challenging Jesus' identity. He's challenging who he is, right? We all face those challenges all the time. We all face those temptations not to be who God's made us to be, but to live out of some other story, some other narrative, some other identity, right? And it's in the place of slowing down in the wilderness, of meeting with God like this, of stopping that we gain clarity on what I call our shadow selves, kind of these false narratives that we're so tempted to live out of. Classic example of this is William Wilberforce, the British politician who labored, spent his whole life to abolish the slave trade in Great Britain. He was a politician, and he spent, I think it took him 40-some-odd years of promoting and campaigning for the slave trade to be abolished before it actually happened, 40-something years. That is a long time to persevere on something. I persevered on something for a week, and I'm like, man, it hasn't happened yet? I might as well give up, right? Forty-something years. I believe it was 43 years that he was persevering. Along the way, you realize there's going to be setbacks. There's going to be discouragement. It's going to be like, why am I doing this? But he was a believer, and he believed this was God's call on his life, that out of his faith in Christ that he was to be a part of this. This is the way he was to express the good and beautiful kingdom in his context. And they said that along the way, uh, there was a regime change kind of in the political currents of his society. And there were rumors started to be spread that Wilberforce might be a shoe in for this new position of power, of fame, of wealth, of notoriety. Kind of you'd get a a really uh, powerful promotion. But if he took that promotion, it would take him away from this cause that he believed God had called him to. And he said this, he realized in in that season that ambition was tempting him and gripping him. And one, you know, just the, oh, it'd be so nice to to be well-known and to be well-received and to make this money and to be influential and all of these things, right? You can realize how it'd be tempting. It'd be tempting if you've been persevering at something for a decade or two decades and it's going nowhere, right? you you're like, I don't know. And here's this opportunity, You know how he remained faithful to God's call in his life? He said that in practicing the Sabbath and taking a day a week to set it apart for rest, for worship, to get alone with God, he said on that day he gained clarity over the temptation of ambition. He said on the gift of the Sabbath, things returned to their true size. And he saw who God was and he saw who he was made to be and his calling. And it gave him courage and clarity to say no to this opportunity to remain faithful to what God had called him to. And ultimately, it changed the world through his practice of the Sabbath. And so we see when we stop and we slow down, we gain insight into all the ways that you and I are tempted That when we just kind of keep going at the normal pace of life, we can drown out, not think about, just keep moving, and we can lose ourselves in the pace of life. Number four, the gift of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that in these times of going into the wilderness, that there's power and authority in the spiritual life that Jesus, that his disciples, that that men and women throughout the Bible receive when they pull away to seek God and to rest and to practice silence and solitude. Fifth gift is the gift of emotional health. Let's stop here for just a moment. This is really important. It is so easy for us to go through life with unresolved emotions. Emotions of bitterness, uh, rejection, failure, disappointment with ourselves, disappointment with God, uh, all of these things that kind of Or working down here, meanwhile, we're living above the surface, just keep moving forward, right? And we can be shaped, our entire lives, the narratives of our lives can be shaped out of those unresolved emotions. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Look at this in Luke 21, what we see in the life of Jesus as he pulls away to pray. Luke 21, we read it just a moment ago, verse 39 to 44. Focus in on Verse 42. Jesus there in the place of silence and solitude, he's able to articulate what he's feeling. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. He's able to articulate his anxiety. He's able to articulate his longing for things to be different. He's able to articulate his feeling for another way, right? He's able to be real with himself there, The book of Psalms is kind of the prayer book of the Bible. It has 150 different psalms or different prayers in it. Two-thirds of them, two-thirds of those 150, are laments, are pouring out, God, I'm in pain. God, where are you? God, I don't like this. God, I'm hurting. God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm angry. Two-thirds of the book of Psalms. There's an entire book of the Bible lamentations that's dedicated to airing our negative emotions to God. What a gift, right? It's in the place, the secret place, in the lonely place that we're able to realize and able to articulate to the Father, this is what's really going on with me. This is really where I'm at. But then notice, Jesus is able to come around, yet not my will, but yours be done. So it's not just an airing of his pain and his disappointment and his, his 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 longings, but it's also a resolution. It's resolved emotions. It's able to work through it and to come to the place where it's like, Father, I want your will, not mine. I'm, I'm, I'm following you, I'm leaning in to you. What a gift! That when we practice silence and solitude in the way of Jesus, that we don't have to live for years and decades with unresolved emotions of disappointment, bitterness, anger, for things that happened long ago, but that we can find wholeness and healing and not just move on with life, but move forward. Amen? The sixth gift of the wilderness is the gift of clarity and calling. Notice what Jesus says when he comes out of the desolate place. When when the people come for him, look in verse 43. Now note, they're saying, man, everybody wants you. You're popular. People want you. Stay here. They're looking for you. It's the praise of man. It's the acclaim of man. It's popularity. It's prestige. It's power. And note what Jesus says. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. There, in that place, he was able to have clarity about his calling. So when there are all these other people wanting him to do all these other things, he was able to be resolute, compelling, uh, passionate, focused in on this is what God has called me to do what a gift. I want to give you an illustration. I've got two uh, mason jars here. They both have water and sugar in them. And uh, about the same amount of water, about the same amount of sugar. Right? So most of us, we live just kind of going through life. You know, wake up in the morning, get to school, get the kids to school, get to your work. Got this deal, that deal, going out with this person, that person, this financial crisis, that one. Right? We just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And everything is like hazy. Like, can you see like this? If you're up here close, you can just see it's chalky. There's sugar spinning around. It's just like life is a swirl. When we slow down, when we stop, this has the same amount of sugar in it. But it's far clearer. You can see, you can see clearly, you can see through it. In our uh, prayer time this morning, a person shared a a prophetic word along these lines uh, related to an illustration. I'll give it to you of a blue jay, right? Blue jays are known for being able to mimic other birds. They're able to, to kind of mimic this bird or that bird. So they spend their whole life singing other people's songs. this person was sharing that that we can so often spend our whole lives mimicking this person or that person, your parents' plan, your spouse's plan, your own wonderful plan for your life, your boss's wonderful plan for your life. All of these things, we can spend ourselves singing other people's songs, mimicking other birds, so to speak. But he was saying, today I believe that the Spirit wants to give people clarity around who they are and the song that they're made to sing to the Father. Wow, he didn't know the topic of the sermon. That is a powerful word for us today to receive. When we practice slowing down, stopping, silence and solitude, we gain clarity on our calling. We gain clarity on the song that we're to sing. So how in the world do you do this? How in the world have Christians in the Bible and throughout history, practiced this way. So I want to give you three practices that we see in the Bible, that we see in church history, that we're seeking to practice as a community. Three ways that we can enter in to this aspect of the good and beautiful kingdom. Number one is the practice of of daily quiet time. You might call it devotional, you might call it the daily office, you might call it FaceTime, you might call it whatever. But it's this setting apart time to be alone, to be silent, to meet with God and to practice every day this time of meeting with the Lord. And maybe for you, it'd be like, man, that seems overwhelming. What if you started with 15 minutes? Just say, I'm going to start each day with just this time to be still and alone before the Lord. That's part of the reason why we're doing these devotionals and they start with silence and they end with silence is that we could practice this together. And maybe as you go, it grows in different seasons of your life to where you could spend 30 minutes or an hour or a couple hours, right? But I think all of us could start somewhere and take a step this week. Super encouraged at our vision night we did in January, we did a survey of people just to kind of see where we are in our values, see where we are in our discipleship to Jesus. And one thing that was really encouraging, uh, we scored very highly as a community on people embodying this practice. It was so encouraging. As your pastor, I was like, man, that is awesome. That's one of my highest goals for us is that we'd be a community that daily meets with the Lord like this. And so you're doing a great job. And if you're here and you're like, man, I've never gotten that. I've never done that. I've maybe heard about it. I've never entered in. Man, there are a lot of people to learn from here. You don't need me to be your teacher. I mean, I'll teach on Sundays, but there's so many different men and women of God in here who are doing this well that you could learn from. That you could be like Jesus' disciples. Hey, teach me how to do that. This is a place where you can learn if this is not a part of your daily Practice. Second practice that we see is that of a weekly Sabbath, taking one day a week to stop, to rest, to worship, to get rejuvenated, to meet with the Lord in this way. Right? Uh, it is practiced in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in church history. This rhythm and this practice. Of have taken a break. I've preached on it before. If you're, like, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. But it's a way that we can enter in to the gift of silence and solitude of the margin of the kingdom. Third attribute or third practice is a seasonal sabbatical, and because this is newer to us, I'm going to spend a few extra minutes on this as we talk about it. So a sabbatical is rooted in the word Sabbath, but it's a more extended, it's not a 24-hour period, it's a more extended break, or rest, or reprieve, if you will. In the Old Testament, uh, the farmers, they were to work their fields for six years, and then on the seventh year, in this new season, they were to give their fields a break for the whole year, which meant a break for them. Interestingly enough, when you study American history in the South, uh, the South overproduced cotton by working the, working the fields and working the fields and working the fields and working the fields and never giving the fields a break. And it stripped the fields of the, uh, of the nutrients, right? So that after a while, they weren't as fruitful as they used to be, right? God was instituting this way thousands of years ago that proved very fruitful for people. Uh, in, in kind of church history, The monasteries used to practice sabbatical. And because the monasteries house not just the the monks, but they also house the universities and the leaders of the universities, that's why if you work in the university system or you're familiar with it today, it's why universities still practice sabbatical. That if you're a professor, you work there for a certain amount of time. My dad is a college professor, right? And every so often he'd have a semester off maybe even a year off to to, to recharge and regroup and refocus and and go deep in his craft. Uh, As a a church, we try and practice this seasonal sabbatical. We actually try and practice all three of these things as a a leadership team. We want to be, your staff, your pastors, we want to be doing the daily getting alone with God. We want to practice that. We want to be doing the weekly Sabbath. We actually ask each other how we're doing with that. We, we, we look into that because that's a hard one to keep. That's a hard one to receive, right? And Antioch is a family of churches. And as a family, uh, they've asked each of our churches to uh, give our staff to practice a sabbatical as a staff. And the way that it works, the way they worked it out is every three years, to give each full-time pastor three weeks of sabbatical. So uh, we're a little bit behind with that, with a growing church and moving facilities, but that's why Joe Paulino has been on sabbatical. He comes back this Sunday. That's exciting, really excited for him to have these three weeks away because he's been working full-time, serving here for five years. So again, we're a little behind, but we're going for it. So he's coming back, uh, I believe, this Sunday, and he's had these three weeks as a gift to practice margin on the mission. Uh, Stephen Murray, who's been here five years, uh, we're working on getting his scheduled for later in the year with a college kind of calendar. That's exciting. We're excited for him to lead us out in a three-week kind of break. I've been here a little longer, and so I'm actually taking a six-week sabbatical, and that's the other thing is after five years, they ask that pastors take a six-week sabbatical, and then every three years after that, subsequently, another six-week sabbatical. Uh, so I'm actually entering into that. Our board has said, hey, you need to lead what you're teaching. You need to practice this. It's very hard for me, if you know me, to stop. Um, but I'm, I'm going on sabbatical in the beginning of May, and we'll be there until, uh, I guess, mid-June or so. And then our family, we're seeking to go on the training school mission trip or go with the training school to Costa Rica on their mission trip. So I want to I lead you guys in this. Our church is going to be in good hands. You've got a great uh, leadership team, lots of men and women of God here. the excited for what's happening on Sundays. We've just got some great people from within our midst who are going to preach and impart and teach as we go through Luke. We'll have some guest speakers. Uh, the House of Prayer and Antioch Kids will be rocking and rolling. And then in two weeks, we'll release our summer ministry calendar. So there'll be lots of things going on as we step forward in the things of God. And at the same time, I want to encourage you, for many of us, the summer is a time where you could practice sabbatical as well. If you're a teacher, you're you're about to go on a break. Now, just because you get a break doesn't mean that you will be able to enter into the sabbatical, right? It takes intentionality and thought, but maybe that's you. Maybe you work in a seasonal industry like real estate, and so you could plan, probably not the summer, but maybe towards Christmas. It's like, this is a slow time. This would be a good time to take a sabbatical. Others of us have vacation policies that allow for extended time off. I want to encourage you to receive this gift, to receive God's care for your life. As we close, Jesus comes out of that with a clear sense of calling that he must preach the gospel of the kingdom all around. And so this this margin is not unto itself, but it's unto mission. It's unto going into this calling that we have as kingdom people to spread to saturate the world with the fame and the name and the good news of Jesus. So in life group in this week or next week we've created a little activity for you to learn how to share your testimony of what God's done in your life in 3 minutes, like to be able to articulate it in 3 minutes. It might take you a little bit longer to put it together, but to be able to articulate it in 3 minutes to equip you, right? Not just to practice margin, but for us to step forward in mission together. So if you're not in life group, get in one. If you've been away, jump in one this week. You'll learn something. You'll be equipped to walk with the Lord. All right, let's close uh, our time together by saying the Lord's Prayer. As we say this, we say the lines each week. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer Jesus gave to his people. God, let us be a people of margin, and let us be a people of mission in the good and beautiful kingdom. So we're going to say that together, uh, and then we're going to have a ministry time uh, as we close. I want to share a few kind of specific words that we wanted to minister to today. Uh, Someone named Timothy who's been carrying around heavy burdens and God wants to relieve you of your burdens. He wants you to know that he's carrying them for you. So if that's you, we'd love to minister to you here in just a moment. I believe God has something for you today. Second one, someone in 10th grade had a traumatic event happen to them in algebra or around algebra that's affected them even to today. And the Lord wants to heal you. Uh, Third one, is that God, that Blue Jay word, that God wants to speak and to give someone their own song instead of mimicking others. And so we'll have our prayer and prophetic team up here at the front and would love to minister to you for that or any other need that you might have. So let's stand and say the Lord's Prayer together as we go into our week. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you as you go.